Good morning, guys. Um, how about we open our Bibles to the book of Daniel, and that's where we're going to be. Uh, if I have not met you before, uh, as you mentioned, my name is Brian, one of the pastors here. Stoked that you guys are here this morning. We've been in a series throughout the summer uh, in the book of Daniel, just looking at it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, making our way through it. Um, I'm excited because it looks like after we finish Daniel, we'll be moving into the fall, obviously. I think we're going to be moving into next, uh, more of an expositional teaching through the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, which I think, honestly, is like one of the most timely um, books for us to study as a church in our culture, this cultural moment which we live in right now. So um, be praying about that, uh, be thinking about that. Um, I think it was already mentioned, maybe you did mention this, that we will be going back to two services. Did that get mentioned? Okay, that's coming up too as well. Um, I think this third week of September, we'll be going back to two services. Uh, as we've mentioned before, that over summertime, we just go to one service. Um, as students kind of begin to trickle away their way back in and people kind of settle back in and get into new rhythms and whatnot, um, our, our church family begins to kind of spread out. So uh, we'll be going back to two services. That'll be 8.30 and 10.30. So it won't really affect you guys per se because you're already here. Um, but we would encourage you to maybe think about going to the 8.30 service as well because within the next month, month and a half, things will begin to start getting more fuller around here. And, and so uh, begin to think about what service you'll be kind of attending. So that being said, we're going to be jumping into the book of Daniel. And before we jump in, what I want to do is I want to pray real quick, and then uh, we will read through a kind of a large passage, uh, passage of this. It's kind of a lengthy passage. Um, hopefully, it'll, I'll break it up so it'll be, you know, you guys can follow along well. Um, but let me pray real quick, and then we will jump in and begin to take a look at what God has to speak to us today. So God, we commit this morning in your hands, and we ask that you would just open our eyes, our hearts, our thoughts, our minds, our imagination not only to what your kingdom is all about, what you're up to in this world, but as well of uh, alternative influences, God, that are constantly constraining and pulling and tugging and influencing us away from all of the work that you are up to in this world. And so, God, help us to be alert, help us to be aware, uh, and help us ultimately to be alive to what you are doing. Uh, we want to be part of this work of new creation that you launched 2,000 years ago. Um, so empower us to be able to do so. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. So what I want to do before we jump in is kind of give a quick little background. We've been looking at the book of Daniel. And one of the things that we've been saying in the book of Daniel is this is the story of the people of Israel that were basically taken off into exile. If you're unfamiliar with the story, they were living in a foreign land called Babylon. Babylon was sort of the depiction of all earthly uh, grotesquely powerful, prideful, arrogant empires, militaristic world superpowers. And uh, here's the people of Israel living under the toe of this world militaristic superpower. And yet, what you have in the story of the book of Daniel are a handful of characters that have maintained throughout the entirety of the story what we would call covenantal faithfulness to God. So while the rest of the empire is going the direction where empires go, which is, you know, destruction and oppression and hurt and, you know, all of these things that we just look at in terms of life, uh, we have these handful of characters, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by name, who are maintaining their commitment to God, even in the midst of this challenging day and age in which they find themselves back then. So what we've been saying all along is that there's a lot of pertinence for us as we read through this, because 
uh, we might not live under you know, Babylonian reign, and we might not find ourselves in the midst of an oppressive type government like Babylon was. Uh, but nonetheless, there are elements that are, that are traits uh, that are very consistent with Babylonian world militaristic superpowers. Um, and we live there. And we live in the midst of a culture that's, that's not necessarily friendly to the ways of God. Um, and so the big question is for us is how do we maintain our covenantal faithfulness to God in the midst of this? So what I want to do real quick as we jump in, I want to take a look at a, uh, just a question um, that in light of the impermanence, because there's a, there's a word that I want us to think about as we read through this chapter. It's just simply the word impermanence. Um, basically means anything that is not permanent, right? So, so there you go. There's, there's my definition. Oh, if you guys don't have Bibles, by the way, why don't you raise your hand? We have some ushers that would love to usher you a Bible. So you guys are so on it, so good. Um, so just raise your hand, I'll get you one. Um, but this, one of the themes and topics, I think, that kind of comes up within the chapter that we're going to read, uh, it's a story that many of us are somewhat familiar with. I mean, if you were raised in any way, shape, or form within a Christian background, um, like I mentioned last week, uh, whether it be VeggieTales or flannel graphs, uh, or, or pick, pick your realm within that. Um, you're probably familiar with the story of Daniel in the midst of this context with the king in which the writing on the wall appears, right? Um, we even use that phrase today. It's just kind of a common phrase, the writing on the wall. It actually comes from this particular passage, this chapter in the book of Daniel. Um, and we'll see how that plays in the larger story in just a moment. But what I want for us to think about is just this word impermanence. Um, I think the tendency for us, especially in our culture, which we perfected the ability to somehow sustain life as best as we can in, in, a, in, a, in an age of youthfulness. Um, in a lot of ways, that's the way we, um, we sell things. I mean, the whole health and beauty industry is kind of built upon this framework that we can, we can keep you young and make you young forever, right? Um, that you can stave off like, like wrinkles and old age and, and ultimately maybe even one day like death, right? Like here to, uh, what, what do they call that? Like uh, Han Solo-ification, you know, what do you, what do you call that? Cry cryogenics, right? Cryogenics, here's the cryogenics, right? Um, and and that the fact of the matter is, is we can't, we can't, we know that, but we live in this illusion that somehow while we live in a world that is impermanent, that we can at least cause ourselves to think that everything is permanent. And then when things begin to go sideways, or they fall down, or they break apart, then we find ourselves shocked, right? We sh we're shocked. We're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this happened again. And, and, and those are just these reminders to us in our culture that this happens all the time. Now, in an ancient culture, for example, in Daniel's day, but even, you know, even upwards of like 250, 300 years ago, uh, death, suffering, pain, loss, grief, all of these things were uh, regular, just part of life. Um, again, in our modern culture, we've, we've learned how to um, at least conceal it or hide it or sanitize it or anesthetize ourselves to it. So when we're in the midst of grief, you know, we have all these unique abilities by which we can, uh, you know, binge watch another show on Netflix or uh, just keep, you know, swiping up and down, left to right, whatever, just to kind of like, like numb our minds to the grief and the pain that's, that's constantly around us. So the point that I'd make is we live in a world that is, is impermanent. But the question I want for us to think about is in light of impermanence or the impermanence of all things, culture, empire, civilization, um, how should we then live? Now, if you're familiar with a guy that I consider probably one of the most important voices of the last 50 years, and I'll, I'll show you the next slide, um, 
um, you know that that phrase, how should we then live, actually is borrowed directly from him, Francis Schaeffer. Now, if you don't know Francis Schaeffer, you need to know Francis Schaeffer. He's dead now, he's with Jesus, but honestly, I, honestly, um, and I, I don't say this lightly, he is probably the most important voice you need to know uh, if you want to understand the, the culture in which you live in. Uh, he, uh, just a quick little story of him, uh, him and his wife, Edith Schaefer, they, they founded a ministry in the Swiss Alps uh, called Labrie, um, and he influenced, like, generations of, of people by bringing them to their, their mountain, you know, Alps place, and they would just, they would do life. It was kind of uh, described as, as communal living or commune, um, but it wasn't cultish or weird or anything like that. But the, the point of the matter is, is they would just live together. And they were, these were people that were either followers of Jesus or people that weren't followers of Jesus. People that were far right or far left. They would just come and they would just learn the way of, of Jesus. And he had written a lot. And so um, you can actually go on to, if you have Amazon Prime, they have an entire like series. It's like six, seven, eight videos of uh, Francis Schaeffer called How Should We Then Live? It's a little bit dated, so if you're, you know, looking for, like, modern, like, you know, great types of videography, that's, this is not it, and you'll be sadly disappointed. But if you can just listen to the content, it's well worth it, because he was an incredible cultural uh, analyst of just trying to understand how can we follow Jesus. Again, just look at the subtitle, The Rise and Decline of Western Thought and Culture. When I judge books, I don't judge them by the, by the, book, by the cover, I judge them by the subtitle. Right? So if it has a good subtitle, I know it's going to be a good book, and it's a great subtitle. If it has a horrible subtitle, I don't even read it. I just completely disregard it. But this is a great subtitle. But the rise and decline of Western thought and culture. Why is it important? Here's why. All right, so here's why. We live, again, like I said, in a society where we tend to think that everything is permanent. And, and that's, that's the problem. It's not permanent. Um, again, we can be lulled into thinking that America, this great, you know, vast, sprawling Empire is permanent. It is, it is not permanent. That's, that's not an anti-American statement. Don't read into that. It's like, he's Brian. The, the pastor's like anti-American. No, I'm not an anti-American. I love the country I live in. But it's not permanent. It's, it's not my future state. It's not my future home. It's, just, it's a place I am blessed to be able to live in. But the fact of the matter is it's, it's impermanent. Um, as with every other ancient culture and civilization, it's everything that we've ever seen on the face of this planet has this degree of, of impermanence. And that's what I want to think about as we read this chapter and just kind of make some statements as it, uh, with it as we go through it. So uh, next slide, I want to just kind of point out a couple passages uh, by way of contrast, because uh, this theme of impermanence as well as permanence in the Bible kind of plays continuously throughout the storyline of the Bible. So for example, on the one hand, you have things that are temporal, um, like flesh and blood and kingdoms and empires and human beings and, uh, you know, culture and trends and all these things. So, I mean, on one hand, we know that trends are, are impermanent, right? Um, that's why you don't wear, uh, I was with my wife a couple days ago, and I saw this gal walking around with, like, these jeans that were, like, bedazzled. I'm like, I can't believe people still wear those. Or remember, okay, here's for dudes. Remember guys would wear those big affliction shirts? If you still wear that, please stop. Um, but the, that whole, like, style is, like, from, like, you know, Five years ago, so seven years ago, like don't, you know, the point of the matter is we, we laugh at that stuff because in that day and age when, when you wore that affliction shirt, you're like, this is so cool. Now you look at it just like, no, it's totally not cool. It's like relegated to the world of NASCAR and that stuff. But the point of the matter is, don't, don't, don't judge me, but the point of the matter is, is that all this stuff is constantly changing. And that's why I want for us to just think about 
So listen to a couple passages, and then we'll jump into the storyline of the book of Daniel, chapter 5. So listen, Isaiah chapter 40, uh, the prophet actually makes this statement. He says, all flesh is grass, um, and its beauty is like the flower. The grass withers, the flower fades. So all flesh, all humanity, th- this stuff, all of it, uh, it's in the, in the mind of the prophet uh, slash poet, he says, it's, it's just grass. It's here today. I mean, again, we have some degree of understanding what this is because the climate in San Luis Obispo is very similar to the climate which the prophet slash poet Isaiah wrote from. Um, it's that climate where only three months out of the year, you have this vibrant color we call green that appears and then it is gone, right? So right now you walk out there, it's, it's gone. It's, everything's golden. I remember one time I was talking with someone. I'm like, it's all brown. They corrected me. Like, it's not brown. It's golden. Like, it's brown. It's, it's, it's not green, in other words. Um, but he's saying that all flesh, all flesh uh, is like grass. It, it's here for a few months. It's here for a little bit. It's here for a short window of time. And then, then it, it fades. It's gone. And then he says the same thing as, as beauty. Um, that's one of the realities which we live in in our culture, especially if you're young. There, there is a place for you in society if you're young and you're, and you're beautiful. If you are old and not beautiful, it's like our society says, we've got to fix that. And we have a cure for that. You know, we have a lotion for that. We've got something to help you uh, stave off old-lookingness because it's not acceptable in this table that we call, you know, modern Western American society and culture. You, you follow what I'm saying here? Um, and what the prophet is saying is that um, all beauty is like, like a flower, um, you, can be, you can enjoy it for the season for what it is, and that's, that's fine. It's nothing, you know, I'm not saying if you're beautiful, it's great, uh, we, we love you, kind of. But the point of the matter is, is it's like a flower. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. So don't hold on to it as if it is the static thing that you think it is, because it's not. Um, age will creep up on you and take that beauty that you hold tenaciously onto and cling to as if that somehow is your identity. If you make that your identity, then at some point you will find yourself sorely disappointed and full of deep, deep sorrow. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we have this culture in which we live in like that. So, again, just listen to this. All flesh is grass. All beauty is like the flower. The grass withers, the flower, flower fades. Uh, Psalm 92, verse 7 says, The wicked, they spring up like the grass. Uh, it says, And evildoers, they flourish, and yet they all will come to an end. Um, I was just reminded of this this past week. I'm sure you guys have been following the news. Um, Jeffrey Epstein, the guy who was like, like on record uh, as being a pedophile, and on top of that, learning of him that he was a sex trafficker and the, the countless lies that this guy probably had wrecked and ruined. And uh, he was super wealthy. I mean, a billionaire, I think they were saying, somewhere around there. Uh, he owned an island. I mean, who, who wants to own an island? I, I do. It'd be really cool. Um, but he owned an island. Like, he had the wealth and the abilities and the strengths and the, the accessibilities of, of an ancient world empire of Babylon. You, you know this, right? And he used that power to dehumanize people, to, de- to destroy other people's lives. And, you know, just within the past, I don't know, 48 hours, three days, four days, whatever it is, uh, they, they claim that he committed suicide. So, again, I'm, that's a little bit of my conspiracy self coming in, so we'll keep that away. But the point of the matter, he's gone. He's gone. And he will, he will face God now. But, but that's just like exactly what Psalm 92 is saying, is that the, the wicked will spring up like grass and evildoers will flourish, and yet they will ultimately one day come to an end. So here's somebody that has an, an enormous amount of wealth and power and prestige and influence and money uh, that he can do anything that an ancient empire uh, or king of an empire could do, and, and yet all of that is gone. 
right now. All of it's gone. Um, it's like grass. It's here today, gone tomorrow. Now, I want you to contrast this with Psalm uh, 102 uh, in terms of God. He says this, uh, you are the same, referring to Yahweh, and your years will not come to an end. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13, uh, applying the similar type of um, reality to Jesus. It says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then Daniel chapter 7, which we'll get to in a few weeks, 7.14. In reference to this, this human-like figure, which also has God-like um, traits. Um, he says, to him was given dominion, glory, and kingdom. Uh, his dominion is an everlasting one. It will not pass away. So we, we have to wrestle with this impermanence, permanent reality, and ask ourselves, how do we live in light of a world that is impermanent? Okay? You guys, you guys doing okay so far? So let's jump in. I want to read uh, the entire chapter. It's kind of, uh, like I said already earlier, it's a little bit of a lengthy chapter, but um, I, you, guys are, you guys are so good at following along. So just think of this as story time with Pastor B, and uh, we will jump in and read some of this. I'm going to break it down for you guys into two main sections, two main sections. Uh, so you can think of these as scenes or acts. So the first act is the handwriting on the wall. The second scene or second act is Daniel interpreting the handwriting on the wall. So just two main scenes. So let's jump in. We'll read. Uh, then King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. So what, what I'll do this morning is I'll, I'll read through this. I'll make some comments on this as I go through. And then in closing, I'll just uh, conclude with a handful of summary thoughts over the story. So again, we'll do the narrative, make some comments, and then with some concluding thoughts. So before we even jump in, I want to just backtrack a little bit. Because if you've been following along in the story of Daniel, you know that chapter 4 concluded with the story of this guy by the name of um, King, you guys remember his name? See how good you guys are. So good. Nebuchadnezzar, right. Right, King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and this is an incredible story of King Nebuchadnezzar who actually submits. He, he faces uh, the ugliness of his own arrogance, right, of which he's ruling from. He comes uh, in relationship to Yahweh. He repents before Yahweh, and he finds grace in, in light of God. God shows him favor uh, in light of his proper taking of heart and laying it bare and, and raw before God. Rather than boosting himself up, making himself privileged and powerful and whatnot, um, he finds grace and favor from God. Now, immediately in chapter 5, verse 1, we're introduced to this guy named King Belshazzar. Um, what most scholars want us to know is that basically this is about, 50, or about 20 or so years in the future from chapter 4. So there's a, there's a very lengthy gap between chapter 4 and chapter 5. Um, the story of Daniel just kind of without skipping a beat, just takes us into the new uh, storyline. And this actually, uh, most scholars identify, this is actually the very end or the concluding chapter um, of the life of, of Babylon, quite literally. Um, by the time we get to the end of the chapter, we'll read it in just a moment, what you have is a complete empire change. It's, it's shocking. Like, I, I want you to pause and think about that. Again, because we tend to think about empires as being um, eternal. They don't they don't stop. They don't come to an end. But what this chapter introduces us to is literally not just a regime change. You know, a new king rises up. But an entire empire change is what ends up happening. So this empire of Babylon, which is profoundly influential, comes to an end. Just pause and think about that. It's over. They are powerful. The hanging gardens of, of Babylon 
done. All of the stuff that Babylon was known for is, is finished. It's over. And another one takes its place. And then in place of the Medo-Persian Empire, another one takes its place. And then another one takes its place. And so on goes down the lineage of, of history. So just listen. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Uh, verse 2, Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and the silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem and be brought that the kings and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So um, I want to pause real quick and just uh, draw attention to the, the, you might be aware of, you might not know of, but chapter 5 in the book of Daniel is one of the chapters in the Old Testament, specifically in the Bible in general, that, that many critical scholars have looked at and have said, we, we know for sure that the Bible cannot be trusted because of what this says right here. So specifically in reference to where it says, um, Belshazzar's father, Nebuchadnezzar. So most scholars identify that Nebuchadnezzar was not actually the father of Belshazzar, which has kind of caused them to raise the question, well, how do, we, how do we even know that we can even trust the Bible? But what's interesting, and again, I don't, if you want to talk to me further about this, I'm glad to kind of point you in the direction of this. But this is like nerdy stuff. So if, if, if for both of you, uh, you can come talk to me afterwards. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to like point you in the direction of it. But what we do know now is that there was like some recent discoveries over the past 100 years that basically pointed out that that everything that's written right here is 100% accurate. That, that actually it was the critics that had gotten it wrong because in time, history and archaeology actually proved that this entire storyline is actually accurate. Um, and then it goes on to say, and then Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, so he brings out these uh, sacred vessels and he begins to drink from them. Verse 3, uh, and when they had brought in the golden vessels uh, that had been taken out of the temple, the house of the God, house of God in Jerusalem, uh, and the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines, they drank from them. They drank wine. They praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So I just want to pause real quick. We'll move on to the, we can move on to the next one, and we'll get to that in two seconds here. Um, but just uh, in, in your mind, what's happening here is exactly what you think is happening. Like, this is literally a, a Game of Thrones orgy. Like, that's exactly what's happening. It's everything you can imagine that's X-rated. It's happening right here in this particular story. Just, just address the big elephant in the room. That's exactly what's happening. It's everything you can imagine that's just disgusting and broken and, and, and wrong with the world. It's like, you know, uh, again, everything that's just full of debauchery. And that's what's happening here in this particular story. Um, this is the example of a, of a guy who's got incredible wealth and power and ability and austerity and influence. And he uses that influence to just to, to get drunk, to party, to uh, entertain people. And that's all the stuff that's kind of playing on into the storyline. And then in the midst of this drunkenness, he brings in these vessels that were sacred. Um, Daniel would have been obviously aware of these vessels because they were part of the sacred temple that had been ransacked and destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar. So I want to continue to read. It says, and immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster, on the wall, in the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it had written. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees began to knock together. The king called out loudly and to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be third ruler in my kingdom. So obviously, if you're following along so far, you realize 
that's, that's odd. That's, that's, uh, indeed, that is strangely odd, like to have a hand appear out of thin air and begin to write on the wall. It doesn't happen every day. So um, it happened in this party, so it was a wild, crazy party. So obviously the king is shocked by this. Like, what's going on here? On here? Why is this taking place? Well, that's exactly what he wants to know. So he does what other kings have done in the past, is they bring in the enchanters, the astrologers, the wizards, right? These people that are kind of like given to that type of thinking and whatnot. So these guys come in, and he's like, hey, I'm going to give you, you know, lots of perks and whatnot. So just help me out here. Tell me what's going on. Verse 8 says, then all the king's wise men, they came in, and they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. Verse 10, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. So it's kind of interesting. It's third time it makes note that the king's color changed, right, in the story so far. So obviously this guy's he's, he's freaking out. He's worried. Oh, let me show you a real quick uh, uh, image. Um, can we, and then we'll come back to it. Is that cool? So I thought it was kind of cool. It's a Rembrandt, if you're like, like art. Um, I, I like Rembrandt. He's an amazing artist. Um, this was, you know, he was really good at capturing people's images on their face. This was obviously done a very long time ago, 1635. This is actually called the Feast of Belshazzar, and it's the writing on the wall. So you can see, obviously, the hand out of nowhere writing on the wall, and you can see this look of this white Caucasian lady, which is totally probably inaccurate, because I don't think there's any, like, white Caucasian... Um, strapping good-looking like ladies from you know uh, Austria there in the midst of the Middle East but there you go um, so there you go but that's the, the image of this is like pretty profound when you just look at the looks on their face of like shock and like oh my gosh what's happening here all right let's go back in the story it says there is a man in your kingdom so this is uh, now information that's being given to this guy Belshazzar from what we're just described as the queen um, again scholars speculate that they believe that this queen is perhaps actually the, the widow wife of Nebuchadnezzar. So she's probably a, an elderly lady at this time, and she's giving information to this guy Belshazzar, which could be um, like grandson or something of that nature. Um, but whatever the case is, that she's familiar with Daniel, and by this time, a lot of scholars believe Daniel's probably like in retirement, right? So Daniel's kind of like done his career. He's, you know, who knows where he's at on the roof of his housetop somewhere, and then they call him in. They're like, this guy Daniel knows how to interpret dreams, and so let's get Daniel in. He can probably figure stuff out. So uh, there's a man in your kingdom in whom the spirit of the holy gods is in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, was found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your, the fa uh, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because of the excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. So now we got Belshazzar, now we got Belteshazzar. So, so we'll just keep calling him Daniel, so to distinguish him, so you're confused. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation. Now we move into scene two. This is then Daniel, verse 13, was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you uh, are that Daniel, uh, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. So again, this is just a, a reference to, um, again, we, we can read that as just data, but what I want you to do is I want you to read that as, as painful data. It's a painful reminder of everything that Daniel had lost, like stolen from him. And who is responsible for that? It was Nebuchadnezzar. 
he lost everything. He lost his homeland. He lost his family. He lost his, uh, to some large degree, his uh, community, his identity that was attached to that community. But even in the midst of that, Daniel was able to hold tenaciously to some degree, to a large degree, his actual Jewish identity, even though everything was taken from him. Um, he's, he's, so imagine Daniel walking into this room, and he's watching these sacred objects, like everyone's getting drunk and drinking out of them and all these concubines and orgies and all this imaginative stuff that's happening around you. Daniel's watching these, these uh, sacred items just basically being misused and mishandled and just destroyed and defiled. And Daniel, there's no reference to that whatsoever. So, so Daniel has a degree of composure um, as he walks in. And then he goes on to say uh, in verse 14, I have heard that you... Uh, have the spirit of the gods in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and enchanters have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain gold around or a chain of gold around your neck, and you shall be third in my kingdom. So again, these are obviously perks that that he thinks that Daniel is going to be all excited about. Next slide, verse 17. It says, Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him its interpretation. Verse 18. O king, uh, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. I'm going to pause real quick and just reflect. Um, Daniel didn't need to go down all of this backstory. Like, uh, this will kind of summarize with some thoughts about Daniel on this. So just hold this story in the back of your mind as we read through this. Um, Daniel is elaborating. He's riffing off of, like, this whole narrative that's playing out right here. So he didn't need to go down this path, but he, he does. It's as if he's reminding this guy Belshazzar uh, that, hey, your father, grandfather, whatever it is, uh, Nebuchadnezzar um, had a very similar encounter of dealing with his own deep, defiled arrogance. Um, but he had a different outcome than, than you. And so he's, he's, he's going to un, unpack for him kind of this punch. Um, and there's a, there's a weightiness to what Daniel's about to say. So just pay attention to it. Verse 18 says, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he'd given him, all peoples, nations, languages uh, trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Uh, whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. In other words, uh, his basic point is that he had supreme authority over all peoples. And then he goes on to basically point out in verse 20. But, he, but when his heart was lifted up, he became prideful. And his spirit was hardened uh, so that he dealt proudly. By the way, the, the word hardened uh, which should take you all the way back to the book of Exodus, where, where another king um, hardened his heart. You remember who that is? Pharaoh. Um, and the hardness of his heart led to a pronounced uh, future and trajectory that was, that was destruction. So he's saying, in this case, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar had hardened his heart, and he had dealt proudly so that he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him, and he was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was that of with wild donkeys, and he fed on grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, 
have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. Just, I would just want you to pause and think about this. All right, so here's Daniel, Jewish. He's in exile. He really has no place at the table of Babylon, all right? He's, he's just, he's, an, he's a second-rate citizen. He's a slave. I mean, he has been elevated, of course, by way of his father, but he's been in retirement. Now, Daniel comes in before the king. He's like, look, dude, the fact of the matter is, you've not humbled your heart. You've known all this data. You've been aware of your story of your father, and you knew what happened with him. But look at you, dude. Like, all of this you've just squandered. And his whole point is, I'll tell you what the writing on the wall says, but you just got to hear all this, like, preface to all this. And, my goodness, just think of the boldness. Daniel, like, this is insane about what's about to happen. So just pull all that in your mind as we go on. Verse 23, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose all are your ways uh, you have not honored. Just, again, Daniel's whole boldness is just like, Look, the very fact that you are breathing right now is a gift from God, whom you have been a glory thief of. You've stolen the glory. You've taken all this incredible wealth, and you've mismanaged it, right? You have hijacked it all for yourself, and you've brought havoc and destruction and debauchery, not only upon yourself, but upon all of these that are part of this whole, whole deal in which now you, you're going to have to face uh, the reality so let's keep on reading. Verse 24 says, Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Uh, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the manner. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, second word, uh, that you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. So the tackle is, is a word that basically, Aramaic word that basically means something that has been weighed, but you've come up short, right? You're a lightweight, you might say, in modern vernacular. You're just a lightweight. That's all you are. There's, there's no substance to you. You're insubstantial, right? You may think you're substantial. You may think you're a heavyweight. You're not a heavyweight. You're totally lightweight. Now, just pause and think about this. Is this not the world in which we live in? We want to be substantial, don't we? Like, isn't that what social media is all about? It's, it's, it's the platform in which I'm able to project the substantialness of my life in front of other people. Because we so desperately want to be seen as having purpose or meaning or significance or substantiality. And what he's saying is that the reality is, Belshazzar, there's no weight to you whatsoever. Your whole life is just a vapor. Your heart is is shallow. This is the reality. So he goes on to say, he says, in Perez, the word Perez basically means divided. Your, your kingdom is, is over. Like this whole thing that you call your empire, it's, it's done. It's over. Uh, next slide. And this is then Belshazzar uh, gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and the proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom but that very night, Belshazzar, the kingdom, or the Chaldean king, was killed. And then Darius the Mede received the kingdom 
being about 62 years. So I just want you to pause and think about the, the last three verses. Number one, um, Daniel, like, I find it kind of comical that Daniel was actually given this purple robe, and here's Daniel probably just like, okay, whatever, you can throw this thing on me. It means nothing to me. It means nothing to me, right? Um, I mean, it'd be like, um, I don't know, someone who's super, super wealthy um, coming to you on September 9th, 2001, saying, hey, you're amazing. I'm going to give you the first five, uh, top five stores, stories of floors of the, you know, World Trade Centers. In the back of your mind, you're like, oh my gosh, this whole thing's under judgment. It's, it's good for nothing. It's the whole thing's coming down. If you had some sort of prophetic insight to knowing what the future was, this is, this is Daniel. He knows this whole kingdom is about to fall because of its deep corruption. And Daniel's just like, whatever. You, giving me stuff is meaningless totally meaningless. My life, my, subs- my substance, my identity, my value is not affixed to your purple robes and your gold chains, all right? Um, think about, just pause right now and think about what are the things that we oftentimes put the most value in in this life? Uh, let me reword that. If there would be something right now that you could get right now that you would cause yourself to think I would be fulfilled and satisfied if I had this thing. Right? I mean, think of, think of it what it is oftentimes. We're like, you know, you post a photo, and you're like, I just want 100 likes. Really? Like, like really? Like, 100 likes? That's going to give you, like, some degree of, of authenticity and satisfaction? Like, talk about five years from now, looking back on that, that little wind, that how, how insignificant that is at some point when you look back on that. I mean, there are things that right now in our lives that we affix an enormous amount of weightiness upon that... Our future self is going to look back at that and be like, what was I thinking? Just like, you know, your future self is going to look back upon what you're wearing right now. Just like our present self looks back five years like, how, how in the world would someone wear bedazzled jeans? All right, sorry. Hey, listen, if you have bedazzled jeans on this morning, we love you. It's totally fine. And I'm so, so sorry if I just deeply offended you. You never come back. I totally understand. But here's the point that I want to make. I'm going to move on from that. Uh, bedazzled world joke. And just point out the, the obvious here. So what we have is this, this final conclusion of a kingdom, or an empire, going into another empire. These things on the world spectrum are enormously weighty. What value does America have? I think pretty, pretty significant. What, what value does China have? I, I think very, very significant. Right? If you're familiar at all with the economy and just where money is being made and where the future is kind of headed. And what about, what about Russia? What about, what about some of these other empires and world uh, militaristic superpowers upon the planet right now? How, how significant are they are? Very significant. They're very important. But compared to what? Compared to a third world country? Of course. Compared to the laborers that run the system? Of course. But what about compared to the kingdom of God that will outlast it all? I've said this before, and I'll say it again. There will come a day when every single significant, and if you're listening to this on podcast, I did air quotes, the significant things that we look at in this life will one day just be a footnote in God's history. Just reflect upon that. The things that we devote time, energy, money, talents to right now. The things that stress us out so much we find our hearts overwhelmed with deep degrees of anxiety right now. 
those very things that we find ourselves worked up over will one day just be a footnote. And here's what I want for us to just consider in closing. Uh, just three things about each of the characters that play in the story. Again, I want to circle back to the big question that in light of the impermanence of all things, how, how should we live? How should we live? Well, I think we have two examples here in the story, and I'm going to just look at them and then uh, finish. So I'll go through these pretty quickly, and I'll make a quick comment, and we'll just end with the reading of a couple passages. Um, Belshazzar's response. In summary, um, Warren Wiersbe has a great commentary here. Just want a nice, simple, easy reading commentary. Uh, he's got some great stuff. He just kind of defines it this way. Three things that Belshazzar's response was, was indulgence. He was defined. This is how he responded to this whole thing. So this raises the question a lot of scholars have kind of wrestled with. Like, like, what in the world was this guy throwing a party for? All right? Thousands of his, you know, dignitaries, the people that are the upper class elite, the 1% in his kingdom. Why is he doing this? Because we know something that the story of Daniel doesn't tell us. We know on a historical basis. We know that a week before this event took place, right? a week before, the Medo-Persian Empire, led by this guy Darius, actually invaded the land of, of Babylon. So, we, again, we know this by way of historical fact. Uh, Daniel just does not necessarily draw attention to this. But we know this, that the land was literally filled with warriors from the Medo-Persian Empire. And so the, the question is, knowing this, knowing your land is filled with 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 enemy, terrorists, literally terrorists all throughout your entire kingdom. Um, the question is, are we dead? And so we, should we just party? Because, you know, we're dead. So might as well go down drunk or having a good time, having this orgy and just enjoying it. In other words, self-destruct mode all the way to the end. Or is this an act of bravado? So these are the questions that scholars spend time thinking about and asking. You know, was this an act of bravado? Was this an act of like, we are so bold and strong and powerful, it doesn't matter if the Medo-Persian Empire is out there, we will conquer them because we are Babylon, right? Babylon the Great. So whether it was an act of bravado or an act of just denial, um, it led to this indulgence. Eat, drink, tomorrow we die. The... The partying mentality is just alive today as it was 3,200 years ago. Whether we party because it's an act of bravado, I'm powerful and I can drink more shots of whiskey than you can, I'll show you how. Well, wonderful, that's, that's, what an amazing human being you are. <laughs> or it's an act of denial, like life sucks, everything's horrible about my life and I'm just gonna act as if it's not horrible and get as hammered as I can. But the point that I would make is this. It's, a, it's an act of just indulgence of giving ourselves body, soul, and mind to something that is not life-giving, but ultimately will just lead to a path of brokenness and destruction. So secondly, we see indifference. Uh, he just he didn't care, it seemed like. didn't really care. And that kind of led to his third act, which is a reverence, which he then brings in these uh, sacred objects and then just parties with them, you know? It's like, hey, cool, we got this, like, golden chalice that was off in some storage room that ultimately came from the very tabernacle of God. You know, who knows what that is? Let's go ahead, get drunk out of that, right? And it's just this act of, like, who, who really cares? There's nothing sacred. That's a lot of ways the world in which we live in today. Nothing sacred. Nothing sacred. Everything's just secular. And I would suggest that 
part of our inability to distinguish between sacred and secular or just kind of flatten it all out is, is an act and a step in a way, direction away from God. Because I would suggest that everything is sacred. Everything. But we end up treating things as if it's just worthless. So we have this degree of irreverence. And so we see that with regard to his response in the midst of crisis and calamity. Secondly, I want to take a look at some final closing thoughts with regard to Daniel's response. Because first of all, I see with regard to Daniel is he had this deep trust in God. And we see this kind of come out when Daniel is approached by the king. He's like, look, if you interpret this dream or interpret this you know, meaning of this writing on the wall for me, um, I'm going to give you a purple robe. I'm going to give you a gold chain. You're going to look like a rapper. It's going to be absolutely amazing, all right? You will be third in the kingdom of greatness, right? And Daniel's just like, I don't, I don't need any of that. I don't care about any of this stuff. You might ask a question like, does Daniel care about anything? And the answer, of course, is of course he does. But he cares about the right things. He, he's got rightly ordered desires in the right proper fashion. I would suggest that for many of us, that's where the rub hits us most hard. <laughs> is that we don't have our desires rightly ordered. We love the wrong things we shouldn't love. We don't love the things that we should be loving. Disorderly desires and that's ultimately what leads to idolatry but in Daniel's heart this is this is like set in the proper fashion where he was able to say look I'm devoted to to the king to God the true king and Daniel's ability to say no is is like a defiant no I don't need your stuff the king of heaven is my God he holds my life in his hand and that, that led to Daniel's ability to just be courageous the second thing is that he's able to be courageous because he knew what story he belonged in. And we've been saying this all along, that when you don't know what story you belong in, we inadvertently try to grab for another story, an alternate story to somehow give ourselves substance and meaning. And uh, there's a lot of them out there right now for wholesale. And they work, some of them, for a short period of time. You read the fine print, every one of them has an expiration date. And when it fails... And expires, so you expire along with it, or at least your deep desires do. And what I would suggest to you is that Daniel was able to be courageous because he, he knew his life belonged to the people of God, ultimately to God himself. And then finally we see that Daniel was able to have this like incredible ability to just tell the truth to speak boldly before the king. And again, this, this always fascinates me because Daniel doesn't go before the king and he's not apologizing. Well, we know that the scripture says this, but you know, I'm a little bit embarrassed about that, so I'm not going to say that. Daniel's just like, here's what God said. He said, you're a lightweight. Imagine that. I, I, don't, mean, I don't think Daniel was saying this with a sense of bravado and arrogance. Mind you, I think Daniel was humble, but he spoke truth. He was able to probably speak truth in a way that was humble, but he wasn't apologizing for the Bible, for what God said, the word of God. He was able to stand with a degree of, with a posture of humility, but also with a degree of courageousness and stand before the king and be like, here's, here's what, this, here's what the, the writing on the wall says. You've been weighed and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided. And it's silver for you. Um, I'm, I'm amazed by this because 
Hopefully, the sermon next week will be better. So the point that I make is that with regard to Daniel is I find a guy that's able to just speak truth even in a, in a culture that's deeply hostile to it. And I, this is one of the reasons why I look at this book and just it resonates with, with, I think, us today in our culture. Because our culture, we're living in a culture that is saying we, we, we want the kingdom without the king. We, we want the elements, the trinkets of the king. We want peace. We want harmony. We want equality. We want women to be raised up. We want all genders to be acknowledged. We want a life where people live in harmony. But at the end of the day, we want the kingdom without the king. And Daniel's whole point is like, you, you, can't, have, you can't have it both ways. The, the kingdom is the king's. To have the kingdom without the king is, is actually a counter kingdom. It's a path of destruction and ruin and brokenness. Because at some point, somebody in power will rise up and then begin to assert their own authority, their own opinions, their own ways over it, and then you have hell again. The only hope is for the king to come to set up his kingdom. And so Daniel was able to be a truth teller. I think this is a call for us, guys, in our world today. Will we be truth tellers? Will we be truth tellers with a posture of humility? And this is what we see with Daniel in the midst of Babylon, which is the prototype of every world militaristic evil empire, oppressive empire that's ever existed. But he stood strong, and God honored him. I want to finish with uh, just a thought. In fact, I'm going to have the worship team come on up, and I just want you to listen to this as these guys are coming up. Um, I had a unique opportunity last week, probably every year I try to get away to a, um, just a retreat center and... Silence and solitude is my thing. I spent four days of maybe saying 20 words, and that was it. I was like, I was in heaven. It was awesome. So um, being an introvert, like, I, I really enjoy my, my private time, and it was amazing. Um, and it just allowed me a lot of time just to read and reflect. And one of the things I read was um, just the book of Hebrews. And this is, this is amazing to me. I, just, I want you to listen to it. Um, the book of Hebrews is written to a group of Christians uh, that were of Jewish origin, that were finding themselves in the midst of a culture that was becoming more and more hostile towards their, um, their, their emphasis of confidence in Jesus. And so they were tempted to drift, to drift from Jesus, to drift on into alternative ideas and concepts. And so the writer of Hebrews is basically saying, look, don't drift. Maintain fidelity to the one who loves you and gave himself for you. Because uh, if you drift, there, there is no alternative um, let me put it this way. Uh, a writer, a theologian guy by the name of N.T. Wright kind of said something along these lines, and I'll just kind of paraphrase it, that the God of the Bible is a God of new creation. To follow the God of new creation is to, to welcome new creation in your life. To not follow the God of new creation is not to walk in new creation. It's to walk in anti-creation. That's the alternative, guys. It's not an alternative creation. It's an anti-creation. It's the opposite. It's what Jesus would later say. It's like, it's destruction, it's hell, it's brokenness, suffering. It's not shalom, it's disjointedness, where nothing fits in place. And the invitation of the writer of Hebrews is to say, don't drift, hold on. And he says this phrase, I'll just read this and I'll make a couple quick comments and I'll pray. 
and we'll respond. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, he despised the shame, and he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, which, based upon the passages we read at the beginning, is an everlasting throne. It's not a footnote. It's not temporary. It's our hope. Three things he says, lay aside. Lay aside every weight. What are the weights? What are the sins? What are the things that right now are like tentacles on your soul and they're dragging you? What are those addictions that, that are you just a little bit too much of this, a little bit too much of that, and you, they're just, they might not even be sin. It might just be a weight. He says, lay aside those things. Secondly, he says, run with endurance. I look at Daniel and say, this is a dude that had endurance, a long endurance. We've been saying that it's a long obedience in the same direction. And finally, he says, look to Jesus. Guys, salvation at the end is about the king. The kingdom without a king is not a, king, is not a kingdom other than a kingdom of death. It's all about the king. History, if it tells us anything, Kings and kingdoms rise and they fall. The story of scripture invites us into a new story that has the king that rose, fell, died, and rose again and lived forever. It invites us to follow him into that life. So I don't know where you're at. I don't know how this resonates with you. I don't know how, hopefully this might even give you some degree of hope. But my encouragement to you in summary is endure. Be aware of the currents that are around us that are taking us in the path of Babylon, destruction, and anti-creation. Be aware of those things. Turn from them. Hold strong. Find other people that are in your life that love Jesus. You cannot do this alone. We need community. And the invitation is for us to repent and to trust. Repentance and faith are the two elements that we're invited into to repent, to turn from those things that keep us from the heart of God and faith, which says, how do I press in and where do I 